Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Hope Community Church Podcast. Hope exists to love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And we believe that as we partner with God in His mission that we can see a world changed. Listen, if you're looking for notes to the message you're about to hear or links to other messages, we want to encourage you to check out the link in our description. If you're looking for more content and resources that we believe will be a blessing to your life, feel free to check out our YouTube channel or download our free app, which is available right now. If this message is a blessing for you, we want you to consider sharing it with your friends and family as we hope to get the message of Jesus spread across the globe. Thanks for joining us. Well, happy 2024. How is everyone? Good. Hope you had a wonderful Christmas holiday and a week off. Uh, New year means new sermon series. And so this week we're starting a brand new series of talks. It's going to be about uh, four weeks long and we're calling it, This is Our God. This is Our God. Um, A.W. Tezzer says this, Whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so I want to do something a little weird to kick off today. If we can close our eyes across all of our campuses, even Fuquay. How we doing, Fuquay? Good? It's awesome? All right, now close your eyes. And online? All right. And I want you, while your eyes are closed, to picture in your mind God. Now, I know it's impossible, right? We can't comprehend him. Our minds can't contain him. But do your best to comprehend God, your picture of God in your brain. And what Tozer says and what the Bible says is that picture that you have in your head right now, it affects every aspect of your life, whether you know it or not. That picture that you're thinking of right now, it determines what you're chasing after and what you're pursuing. It determines how you respond to other people. It determines your hopes and your dreams and your fears and your concerns. It determines how you define truth and beauty, and evil, and the good life. And paradoxically, that that, that picture of God that you have in your head right now, it really determines um, how you view yourself, how you picture yourself. It affects everything in your life. All right, you can open your eyes. Now, if I were to do something magical, if I could, and take that picture of God that you had in your brain and slap it up on the screen here behind me and then take everyone else's picture of God and compare and contrast them on the screen, something you would notice right off the bat is that all of those pictures are slightly different. So the truth is that your idea of who God is and my idea of who God is is a little bit different. And that's because from an early age, you've been piecing this picture of God together. Uh, You've been taking puzzle pieces from here and there and kind of forcing them together. And you've taken uh, what your pastor has said and you've taken what the Bible says and you've taken the words out of books and you've taken uh, what other people have said. You've taken your experiences. You've taken your best guesses and you've kind of hobbled all these pieces together and fashioned your best uh, attempt at what God is like. That's the picture that you have. And so because that's true, the picture that you have and the picture that I have, they're not entirely accurate. You have some pieces that are missing. I do too. And you have some pieces that you found and you tried to throw up there and they don't belong. They're not true about God. And so growth and maturity in the Christian life is really about forming a more and more accurate picture of God over time until we see him as he really is, face to face. That's why Paul in the New Testament in his letters, he writes down prayers that he has for Christians. And he prays lots of things, but one of the most common things that he prays for Christians, for us, is that they would grow 
uh, in their knowledge of who God is. Because if your picture of who God is is inaccurate, then that's going to affect your life in bad ways. Like if you think that God is very hard to please, then you're going to spend your entire life seeking after that approval. The approval, that's already yours in Jesus. That's what God's word says. Or you'll get to a point where you say this is impossible and you just give up trying to please him at all. Or if you think that God um, is short-tempered instead of patient and slow to anger, like the Bible tells us, then you're going to have a fear-filled relationship with God and you're going to keep him at arm's length and really keep other people at arm's length as, as well. Right? So we can see and the inconsistencies we, we have are going to affect our life. The things that you most want to change about your life are probably rooted in lies that you believe about God. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be uncovering some of these lies that a lot of us have come to believe. God is not great. God is not um, gracious. God is not glorious. God is not good. Uh, we, they're called the four G's. They're out of this small little chapter in a book called You Can Change, which you should buy. It's by Tim Chester. And we're going to be revealing those lies and then replacing them with the truths of scripture. And uh, I think God's going to do a work in our hearts. I'm hoping so. He's worked in my heart just preparing for this series. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me or click with me to Judges chapter 6. Weird place to kick the new year off. I know um, it is uh, at the early part of the Old Testament. Um, but in this chapter, I chose this chapter because we see Israel uh, begins to believe a very common lie that a lot of us are believing right now. And through chapters 6 and 7, God exposes that lie and then teaches them what the truth really is. And so we're going to follow along. So read with me the first six verses. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian, which is this country that they're at war with, for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. And leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. And they would come up like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now what's going on? Well, uh, we're near the beginning of the book of Judges. Anybody read through the book of Judges? You're lying. It's after Leviticus and you read through the Bible. Uh, you never get there, but maybe some of you have. But have you ever seen the movie Groundhog's Day? Yeah, okay, that's the book of Judges, right? So there's this process that happens over and over again. Israel's doing great. And then uh, they begin to believe a certain lie about God. And it's different throughout the whole book. They begin to take matters into their own hands, step away. They make a huge mess of things. God swoops in, saves the day, uh, gives them a godly leader for a time. And then that leader either dies or turns evil and Israel rebels again. And the process happens over and over and over and over and over again. That's what we're seeing in chapter 6. Now in this chapter, this process starts because Israel has begun to believe that God is not great. God is not great. That he's not powerful enough to handle the situation that they find themselves in. The theological term would be sovereign. Everyone say sovereign. 
So they've begun to believe that God's not sovereign or he's not in control. And, and we can tell that by verse 6 where it says, and they cried out to the Lord. And it's not what they said, it's when they said it. When did they cry out to the Lord? Not in verse 1. All the way down in verse 6. You would have thought they would cry out to the Lord when they first saw a million camels coming over the horizon with warriors on their backs. But no, they waited seven years. Seven years before they said, uh... God, do you think you can help? Right? See, prayer for them was a last resort. Why? Because they'd come to believe that God's not great. He's not powerful. He's not in control. He can't do anything. Listen, your prayer life will reveal how great you believe God is. How often have you prayed this week? That's probably equal to the amount of greatness you think God contains. If they truly thought that God was great and in control, that would be the first thing they did. But for seven years, they tried to fix the problem all on their own. And we do this, don't we? Not when things are going good. Thank you, Jesus, right? I am a child of God, amen. But when things start to get uncomfortable, when this one area gets kind of out of whack, so easy to start to believe that God is not in control, that he's not that great. And what do we do? We take matters into our own hands, don't we? And I do this, and I'm a pastor for crying out loud. I know what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. I preach sermons on it. But so many times in my life I get off the stage or I step out of the study and one area starts to go a little wonky. I'm like, God, you are sovereign. You're completely in control. But there's not quite enough money this month. And we've been generous. And we've been following your rules and regulations about how to handle our finances. We've honored you. God, are you sure? Sure you're in control here? Or one of our kids starts to go crazy. After we followed the 17 parenting books we own to a T and we started to think, God, are you sure you're sovereign in this area? And this crazy thing starts to happen when I think this way. When I start to think that God's asleep at the wheel, what do I do? I grab the wheel. Anybody else do that? I step into God's role. Anybody got control issues? Yeah? Those of you not raising your hand, like if I was in control of this sermon, I wouldn't ask questions like that, right? Yeah, control. Paul Tripp says this, I'm increasingly persuaded that there are only two ways of living. This is good. Trusting God and living in submission to his will and his rule, his sovereignty, or two, trying to be God. And there's little in between. How many of you, you're honest right now? When it comes to your spouse, when it comes to changing and transforming your spouse, you may be stepping into God's role a little bit. How many of you, when it comes to your kids, when it comes to them one day leaving the house and facing the world on their own, you got your hand wrapped around a little tight. When it comes to your career, when it comes to your finances, when it comes to uh, your college experience, when it comes to your roommate, when it comes to your relationships, how many would have to admit, hey, I've been living like it's all up to me for a little bit. Yeah, all of us could probably raise our hands. And here's the thing, when we do this, when we think God is not great, so I have to be in control, when we try to control, not only, and you need to hear this, are you stinking annoying to everyone around you? You are. But also, guess what the end result is? It's not peace. It's not a good night's sleep. It's not courage to face an uncertain future, no. It's a growing sense of fear and desperation. It's being paralyzed by anxiety and stress. And oftentimes, even though we might not even notice it, you know what you're doing? We're actually fighting against God's good plan for our life. And that's where Israel is. 
And that's where probably a lot of us are as well. And the cool thing is, is that God doesn't want us to live that way. He wants to show us that he truly is great, that he truly is in control, and he wants us to live in the peace and the rest and the joy that comes from living underneath his rule and his reign. And so when we begin to believe you're not great, when we believe, begin to believe I need to be in control because you're not, he will lead us through a process to teach us how great he really is. And in my experience, it's not a very fun process, but it's an important process. And it's a process that he's teaching Israel at this moment. It's just a three-step process, pretty easy. Um, but first, um, since Israel thinks, man, you're not very good at being God, let me try. He teaches them how good of God's they really are. And we've already read this part. It says in verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. It's not that Midian took them out of the hand of the Lord. No, the Lord gave them to the hand of Midian. In verse 6, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. See, contrary to what Israel's thinking in this moment, God is not absent. He's not busy somewhere else, minding some other matter. No, he's very much present. He knows the suffering they're going, under through, going through. He understands their plight. He is active the entire seven years. He's just not swooping in and saving them yet. Instead, he's doing something more important. He's humbling them. He's humbling them. Once they start to believe that God is not great, God says, okay, you want to face the Midianites on your own? Go for it. You want to try this whole God thing? Go for it. And he lets them face the Midianites on their own. You think you're strong? That's how strong you really are. You think you're wise enough to handle them? Okay, try it. Yep, that's how wise you really are. You think you got the competence, that you got the technique, that you got the skill to handle this problem? You think you're so good at being God? This is how good you are at being God. And it's not very good. And for seven years, he lets them wake out and look out their little cave windows and think, man, being God's pretty hard. He humbles them. God ever done that with you? I was talking with a wife, not my wife, a wife, years and years ago. And she called me up and um, she said, I want to meet with you about my husband. Very common email I get. And uh, so she shows up and she said, I recently came to know Jesus and I knew that. And she said, but my husband doesn't want anything to do with him. So he's still drinking, he's still out partying, he's staying out late at night. And I said, I'm sorry to hear that. And she said, well, yeah, it's okay, but this week I gave him an ultimatum. And so I said, hey, you need to stop drinking, you need to stop partying, you need to start getting up early and reading your Bible, you need to come with our family to church. And if you don't, I'm gonna kick you out of the house. And I said, How's that working? <laughs> and she said, well, he's looking at apartment leases as we speak. <laughs> and I walked out of that meeting and I thought, do you think that God wanted her husband to come to know Jesus? Yeah, his word says he does. It's God's desire that none should perish. Do you think God and his sovereignty wanted to use her influence to affect that change in his heart? Absolutely. But in that moment, you know what he wanted more? He wanted her to not live under the illusion that she had the power to do that. To change a dead heart into a living heart. To give sight to the blind, that's something only God could do. And so I watched over the course of about a year and a half. I was talking with my wife just the other night about it. And he waited. And in his sovereignty, he used her attempts to change her husband. Her attempts to control to actually humble her to change her first. He graciously let all of her attempts 
fail, really backfire. And in his grace, he waited until she understood, oh, salvation belongs to the Lord, not me. And when she understood that, when she stopped nagging her husband and started praying to God, when she stopped demanding stuff of him and started depending on stuff from the Lord, that's when the Lord stepped in. And a year and a half later, her husband was miraculously saved. That's when the change started. But it's only after he humbled her. That's the first step. So he humbled Israel, he humbled her, and he will humble you and I. Listen, in his grace, God will patiently remove any illusion of strength that you might have. You might be angry at him right now because he's doing that, but it's not a punishment. It's a good thing, it's a gift, it's a grace. And so the first thing he does is humbles them, and he's really successful at it. Look at verse 11 in chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. Not Oprah or Okra, but Ophrah. While Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. This is what Israel's been reduced to. So normally when you thresh wheat, it's like popcorn kind of, you got to crush the kernels and you got to get that hard stuff off and you want to do it outside where there's a breeze because you crush it, you throw up those little seeds up there in the chaff, the bad stuff blows away, but he's doing it underneath the ground in a buried wine press, just kind of like doing the best that he can. This is a, a, a frightened, a humiliated, a scared, a demoralized person and a nation and God's like that's where I want him and look what the angel says and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him the Lord is with you this is so good oh mighty man of valor now some people say the angel's making fun of Gideon like oh mighty man of valor I don't think anyone in this room would be able to do what Gideon does in chapter 6 and 7 I think I think he's he's not making fun he's being honest here and Gideon said to him please my Lord this is the good part if the Lord is with us why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And he's, he's just putting words to how our hearts feel. The angel says, hey, the Lord is with you. And Gideon says, oh yeah? If the Lord was really with me, why am I threshing wheat in a wine press? You know, my biscuits taste like Boone's Farm. If the Lord is, Jamie liked that one. If the Lord is with you, if the Lord's with us, seriously, why are the Midianites overcoming us, right? If the Lord is with us, why are our people starving? If the Lord is with us, why is Midianite getting fat and happy at our expense? And see, Gideon doesn't understand how God's presence can still be with him in uncomfortable circumstances. Feel like that sometimes? He doesn't understand how God can still be in control of a situation that looks completely out of control. I feel like that all the time. But see, Gideon doesn't understand. He's gonna be taught what we all need to be taught. Listen, God is who he says he is, no matter what your circumstances might suggest. It says this in verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, yeah, that's true, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And what God's doing here is after the humbling, he moves on to weakening. It's different. If you came up to me and said, man, I'm, I feel like I'm a really good boxer. Like I could take on the best of the best. I'm like, all right, go fight Mike Tyson in his prime. You get knocked out, right, in 13 seconds. That's humbling. Now I say, now go do it again, but I'm going to cut off both your hands, all right? 
that's weakening. See the difference there? God will move on to that second step. And you're thinking, come on, Chase, that's not fair. Why has there got to be a second step? Like he's already afraid. He's already humbled. Why does God kind of kick him when he's down? There's a very good reason. It's because God wants to save Israel, but he wants to do it in such a way where his power, not theirs, is on display. And so he goes through a very long process, step after step after step after step, of weakening and weakening and weakening. So he chooses the craziest person to lead this battle. Gideon is the weakest son of the weakest family, of the weakest clan or extended family, of the weakest tribe of a pretty darn weak Israel at this moment. He's the last person anyone would choose to lead an army, but he doesn't stop there. He says, Gideon, I want you to go assemble an army. And so he, uh, well, first off, he takes away their gods. We don't have time to read that. But he says, I want you to destroy any other god that you might be trusting in. Let me take those away. Then he says, go assemble an army. So um, Gideon sends out word, and uh, all the Israelites come out of the caves, and uh, he amasses 32,000 men, which is pretty good. 32,000 fighting warriors. And God says this in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever's fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. God said the army's too big. Too big for what? It's not too big to fight the Midianites. You probably need 50,000, 100,000 more to at least feel comfortable. So if it's not too big for the battle, then what, what is it too big for? It's too big for Israel to see the greatness of their God. It's too many, so many wars that they would be blinded were they to win of the greatness and sovereignty and power of their God. And they really need to see that. And you and I really need to see that. And so he whittles them down to 10,000, but he's not done. He just keeps going. Verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I'll test them for you there. And we won't read it. And there's no symbolism here, but some dudes bend down and they lap at the water like dogs. And someone put water in their hands like civilized people and drink from their hands. And uh, God says, um, with 300 men who lapped, I will save you. 32,000, 10,300 and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man to his home. So no more foreign gods. 32,000 to 10,000, 10,000 to 300. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. We didn't read that part. But God also says this. Hey, you got some swords laying around here? Yeah, best of the best. Cool. Throw those away. You're not going to need those. You got some spears? Awesome. Go ahead and burn those for firewood. You don't need those. In fact, I want you to pick up uh, some jars and some candles and some trumpets. That's what you're going to fight with. Jar, candle, trumpet, right? And it's almost laughable at this point. So can you picture it? Like 300 dudes, like, the, like a Yankee candle marching band, you know, just like lanterns and jars and trumpets going to fight this uncountable like sea of warriors. And then it says this, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So not only did he weaken and weaken and weaken and weaken, but he says, I want you to spend the night where you have a perfect view of this sea of warriors. And you get to this point and you're like, what in the world is God doing? He's humbled and then weakened and weakened and weakened. He's doing something very, very important. And maybe he's doing it in your life. Listen, God never delights in hurting you. 
He never takes joy in putting you in uncomfortable situations. But he has to teach you to trust him. And not just for your salvation, but every area of your life after that as well. He has to get you to depend on him. That's the most important lesson we can ever live, dependence on God. And because that's so important, God will not just humble us, he will often weak us. He'll take away our health for a season. Take away our finances. He'll allow that college major to not work out. He'll allow that child to walk further and further and further away. He'll leave you in that stressful job. He'll allow that relationship to not heal. And here's the key, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If dependence is the goal, and it is, then weakness is an advantage. That's why he's doing it. If dependence is the goal, then weakness is an advantage. And you're like, Chase, how in the world can weakness ever be an advantage? That's not what David Goggins says. You know, that's not what Jocko says. No, it's not. But it's what the Bible says. The Bible says that weakness, that being intimately aware of our limitations, it's one of the greatest strengths that we can have. In 2 Corinthians, it's a profound letter that Paul writes. And near the beginning and in the middle, um, he, he writes about this thorn in his flesh. And if you've been around church, you know this. And we don't know why God gave Paul a thorn in his flesh, but he did. And we also don't know what it is, but we do know it was limiting. And three times Paul prayed out to the Lord, okay, I get it now, I'm humble, I should depend on you. You can take this thorn away. And God says, no, I'm not gonna do that. And he prays again, God, no, I really understand. And I don't know if you've noticed this thorn, it's limiting my ministry, God. I could do more for your kingdom. Take this away. And God says, no. And Paul prays for a third time, God, I'm, I'm begging you, take this thorn away. And God says, no, and he gives him his reason. Paul, I'm not gonna do that because 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul, after years of living with this, says this incredible thing. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul boasts. He brags. He gloats about. He, he takes joy in. He rejoices in his weaknesses. Why? Because he understands that anything that gets us to lean into Christ Anything that gets our eyes off of ourselves and our strength and our power and onto God, anything that gets us to depend on God is the biggest advantage that we can have. And I'm looking at a few people right now, I'm not gonna name you, don't worry, that know this, that have experience with this because I've walked with you through weak seasons and you've walked with me through weak seasons and it's true. It's only when that spouse failed you did you realize, God never will. God never will. Never has and never will. It's only when you were unable to provide for yourself financially that you realized oh, God really is as generous and faithful as he says he is. It's only when that relationship fell apart or you had to move across town for that job and you finally felt profound loneliness and then realized oh, I don't have to feel that because God's always with me. What's that saying? You, you never know he's all you need until you get to a place where he's all you have. Right? God will intentionally put you in a place of weakness, in a place where you can no longer rely on your power 
so that you can begin to rely on his presence. Any parents in here? It's like God's school classroom to teach us that. can't tell you how many times with parenting I get to the end of myself. And that's what God did at Gideon. And that's what he's doing to Israel. And that's what he's done for all the founders of our faith. And that's what he'll do to you and me. And once Gideon and his army learn that, (laughs) once they get to a place where they realize even though we've been humbled and even though we've been weakened and weakened and weakened and weakened, we are still going to take a step into this battle, whether it's with swords or with pots and trumpets, that's when God begins to come through. So Gideon divides the army into three companies, 100 men, 100 men, 100 men. It says two of them, you flank the, the, the Midianites. And it says this, so Gideon and the 100 men who were with them came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets. And they smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. And they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp. Said, God, if you don't come through, we are going to die. We're going to be killed. But we're going to rush in here with trumpets and jars. And what does it say? And all the army ran. And they cried out and they fled. And it was through the humbling and it was through the weakening. And more weakening, and more weakening, and more weakening that God puts his glory on display for all to see. And he does it in such a way that Israel can never say, it's by my power. No, 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 no. It's by his. So I want to end in a weird way today. I want us all to close our eyes again. If you're sleepy today, I'm sorry. It's a bad service for you. But go ahead and close your eyes. And uh, I want you to think of that one area of your life where you might have stepped into God's role a little. Just think of that one area where if you're honest, you're probably trying to control it a little bit. And if you don't know what it is, it's that one area where you feel a little bit of fear. You feel a little bit of stress. There's probably some bitterness at God because he doesn't seem to be there. Maybe you're starting to feel a little bit of hopelessness. And I want you to metaphorically grab that area with your right hand. Go ahead and do it. Grab that area with your right hand and I make a fist and I want you to hold that fist up in front of you palms up with the knuckles up and I want you to listen to me before we pray listen you are struggling in that area not because you are too weak but because you're not weak enough yet you are struggling in that area not because you're not strong enough because you think that you are far too strong and that area it may feel like it's completely out of control It may feel like if you don't do something, it's irredeemable. But that's not true. You know how I know that? Because 2,000 years ago, as the sinless son of God hung on the cross, put there by the very people he came to save, dying, crying in agony, Every single person watching the cross would have had to say, there is no way God is present there. There is no way God is sovereign in that. There is no way God can use that and redeem that. I mean, if there's ever an instance where it looks like God was not great, not in control, that was it. But what do we know? We know that even during the death of his son, God was in complete control. 
completely present, completely sovereign, and it was through the weakness of the cross that God displayed his power. It was through the death of his son that life and salvation came to all of us. So if he can handle the cross, if he can use the cross, he can handle that situation. So I want you to hold that that hand out in front of you, and I want you to pray something like this. Just say, God, I confess that I believe the lie that you are not great. Not in every area of my life, but in this one. I've forgotten who you really are. I've allowed circumstances to define you instead of your word. And I confess, would you forgive me? God, this area is really, really important to me. And it scares me to give up control. It scares me to take what's in my hand right now and place it in yours. But that's what I want to do today. So if everyone could open their hands right now, just symbolic. And just say, Father, I lay this area of my life at your feet. I can't control it. I can't manage it. And you never ask me to. So I'm going to stop trying. I take this out of my hands and place it in your capable hands. And from this moment on, I'm going to try with all my heart to depend on you. I'm giving up my illusion of power and strength, and I'm depending on your real power and your strength. And I thank you right now for the glory that you're going to display and the good that I'm going to receive. Amen. You can look up. Now, for some of you, that might be the only thing that you need to do. But for others, you might need to do that again this afternoon and then again tonight and then again the next morning and the next morning. But however long it takes you to get there, Reminding yourself, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. I promise. The moment you give up control and you start to depend on him, that's the moment his power is going to be unleashed. So get ready for it. Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the undeniable proof of the cross. That, God, you were greater than we could ever imagine and more in control than we could ever be. Help us to live in the freedom and the peace and the joy of that. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.